It's time for your NBA fix. This is the Big Show Daily Assist. Featuring all the latest news and insight on the association. Now joining the Big Show. Senior NBA writer for The Athletic, Sam Amick. On 97.5, 1280 The Zone and The Zone Sports Network. Sam, happy Thursday, and uh, the playoffs are here, man. It's great. Happy Thursday, guys, and I'm with you. We got good action. We got, you know, some surprises. We need to avoid all injuries. You guys got Donovan back. We need Chris Paul to be healthy, but it's been fun so far. Absolutely. Let's. We've got a lot to get to uh, with you today. Let's start with your your thoughts on what you saw uh, in game number two and how the Jazz adjusted, certainly offensively, to what the Grizzlies are doing. Well, it was fun to watch. Um, I'm a sucker for just the, uh, the the human part of like we forget sometimes about the athlete experience and Donovan like being on a shelf for more than a month and then obviously being disappointed and frustrated that he didn't get to play in game one. Like, you know, if you didn't know any of that backstory, but then you watched the way he competed in that first quarter, like you probably could have guessed like, man, there's something different going on with this guy. Like he was just on one and it was fun to watch him clearly try to check Dylan Brooks and send a message like, okay, our, our big dog is back and you can stop, you know, trying to bully us type thing. Um, you know, that was fun. And they obviously, they hit their threes, which is something that didn't happen in game one. And you know, even beyond Utah, that you know, yet again, we get reminded that in the playoffs, sometimes, you know, you can't count on threes like you could during the regular season. Phoenix ran into some of that. And, uh, but that was obviously a big factor in game two. So, Sam, uh, we heard you ask a question in the press conference that uh, Donovan had. I believe that that was the one. And uh, so I'm curious to know if you've learned anything more about the backstory there. And if you ha- even if you haven't, I'm curious to know what your instincts told you about that, that disagreement. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I've got a pretty good grip on it. You know, Tony Jones and I have written that story looking at the fact that I think the one thing that it is clearly at the middle of the frustration was that, you know, Donovan's personal training staff had essentially given him the green light and said they thought he was good to go. And that, that was not in accord, you know, that was a different uh, verdict, I guess, from the team. And it, this is the kind of a story that I think we're probably going to run into a little more frequently in today's NBA, because you're, you're seeing more and more star players, have outside trainers, have outside medical people, and you know they want to to control as much of their situation as possible, which I understand. But it's you know it becomes challenging when you're trying to coordinate, collaborate with the the team that you know that employs you. And, and I think it's probably a learning process for everybody who's involved. And like one of the things that we hit on in the story was from a, a logistical standpoint, you know, one thing to highlight is like. Back in the day, and this doesn't make it the right way, but you might only have like three people on a team that were determining whether or not a player would be ready to go. And now all of a sudden you might have double digits in terms of people working for the franchise who have a voice and then maybe another three or four or five, you know, who knows on the personal training staff side. And that's a lot of voices in the room. And so getting to a clear decision that's best for 
the, the player, first of all, and, and also the team, which I think tougher than it used to be. You said it, Sam, and I, and I thought your piece uh, teaming up with Tony was was terrific. I thought mm-hmm. you guys did uh, did a, a really great job. But the, this this is a, a tricky situation, right? And I have sympathies uh, for both sides. I mean, Donovan really wants to play. You know, that's <laughs> that's not a problem. That's a great thing. And the Jazz, right. I, and I, I don't know all the details, of course, but but would seemingly are behaving cautiously because they feel like that's in their long term uh, best in, interest, and and that's also. Uh, a good thing. So I guess ultimately my question is, has there been damage done in the relationship with these uh, competing interests? I don't, I mean, I don't think so. I'm going to just trust kind of what I was told, which is that of course they know that he wasn't happy. And of course it's something that, yeah, it might leave a mark for a while, but it, it certainly helps him. I mean, he just re-upped on his, you don't have to worry about the contract side, which right. is not to say that that's the end all be all, but, you know, he knows that, that he re-upped with this group and he believes in them. I think one thing we're learning about a lot of players these days is they're they're more comfortable just being uncomfortable sometimes with their franchise, if that makes any sense. And it doesn't mean, you know, that that kind of a player might turn around, you know, next year and say, hey, I want to trade, get me out of here. I think it sometimes just means they're, they're okay saying, I didn't like how this went down. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to, you know, head for the hills and, and not follow through on what we agreed to try to do together here. But, you know, I think they, they want their voice to be heard and to not feel bad about that. You know, I mean, Donovan knows his value. He knows what he means to the franchise. So I think they'll be okay. Um, you know, and I think that, you know, within all that, the Jazz are still figuring out some of these new dynamics, even with Dwayne Wade coming in, you know, and things like that. Um, Everybody's kind of recalibrating after, a, obviously, a pretty intense uh, period from, you know, March through July last year as well. So, Sam, uh, you you saw what happened as Donovan comes back and the Jazz exploded offensively, uh, scoring more points than they'd ever scored in the playoff game before. And Donovan uh, looked pretty good, and uh, his teammates responded to him. Do you believe in that kind of bleed over, both from a – an emotional standpoint and a physical standpoint, or do you think that's overdone a little bit? No, I I do for sure. You guys know me well enough by now. Like, you know, um, that element of the game has always interested me. And yeah, I believe in it. I mean, you could just see, if anything, Donovan talked after the game about managing his own adrenaline and how like you run the risk of, of kind of burning it all in the first quarter and not having anything left. And I think they did run into that a little bit. He was so jacked up early on, and it seemed so personal with Dylan Brooks. You know, and, and Dylan's another guy where you could look at it and say, you know, in, in game one, Dylan was the heartbeat of the Grizzlies, and they followed his lead, and Ja was right there, and they got the win. So, yeah, I believe in it because it really is It's no different than being on the playground, and, and you think you're taking on one of the better teams you know, on the blacktop, and then you look up and you're like, oh, this is awesome. They don't have their best guy, you know, and, and that's what Don, Donovan is. You know, Rudy, certainly, we could have that debate. Who's better, who's more important? Rudy and Donovan are both incredibly important to that group. But as far as, like, the swagger of the team and, you know, the guy who uh, you would expect to be taking that last shot at the end, that's Donovan. And for him to not be out there in game one, you saw the emotional void within their team. And then conversely in game two, you saw the, the pickup that it gave them. 
Sam, just an observation to run by you and, and curious to get to your thoughts. But uh, we, we used to work very closely with, uh, in fact, he did a show for a brief period of time on this station with uh, Sean Bradley, uh, of course, uh, a notorious shot blocker and, and, you know, joking around, talking to him about uh, ending up on so many posters, right? And, and he sure. said, hey, I don't regret it at all. That was my job on the team is to go contest that shot and, and protect the rim. That was my job. And if I ended up, uh, you know, on a poster for trying to do my job, so be it. And, and with that in mind, last night, that block that Rudy had on John Morant uh, was just incredible. And I, I actually think it says a lot about Rudy, and I think it says a lot about Ja. One, Rudy, of course, is, is going to go out there and, and do his job. But also, you know, Ja Morant, it takes courage to try and do that to Rudy. And, and he did not shy away from it after that happened. He continued to attack all night long. I think it says a lot about both of them. No, I agree. It was a great play, and it, and it really, you know, if ever, whatever the opposite of getting posterized is, that's obviously what happened to Ja. But my goodness, it still was incredibly entertaining to watch, even before you got to the block. You know, I, this analogy comes to mind, maybe because in my backyard for the kids, we have a trampoline. But Ja looked like, you know, you jump on the trampoline, but it's got one of those mesh nets around the edge, and, and you basically just got sucked up into the net. You know, that's what happened when he met Rudy. And then, listen, John, he got the counterpunch. Like, I still, I love Rudy's game, and I, I didn't ask any questions of Rudy last night on the Zoom, but if I was going to, I would have been tempted to, you know, and I don't know how you ask this delicately, but to be like, Rudy, like, why why did you duck out of the way on the second one? Like, he had another chance to kind of eat him alive, and, and I think, honestly, the ferocity with which John goes to the rim, and I can't read Rudy's mind, but I wouldn't have blamed him if, on that second one, which was not as dramatic as the first, but, you know, Rudy was right there. And then you saw Rudy, maybe it was a foul trouble thing, who knows, but he, he chose to, to get off the, the tarmac, you know what I mean? And, and John finished the play. So that part, the fearlessness and, and the mutual respect, I thought was, was definitely a cool moment. Sam, what do you think about the Jazz's defensive woes? I mean, this is just a matter of a great player like John Morant exploding into what he really is. Or is this something that needs to concern the Jazz because they don't seem equipped to, to to slow him down? And Dylan Brooks maybe as well, although Jake doesn't believe Dylan Brooks is really what he seems to be. Not in these past two games where he's hardly missed a shot. Yeah, I mean, Dylan, you know, he's having a coming out party. Um, I like Reggie Miller had a line about him the other night. He said, he said he likes Reggie said I like a little bit of loco, you know, and and, <laughs> and and Dylan might go too far at times, but that crazy that Dylan is bringing to the table has been contagious on the Grizzly side. Um, but no, the deep. I mean, you know, the defense on the Jazz side, you know, what was it, thirty points in six minutes, you know, in third quarter, something like that, um, like eighteen straight possessions, I believe, without a stop. It's like, come on, that's. That's enough to, you know, I mean, Quinn Snyder's not going to sleep for a week after that one. So, you know, that's not who they are. Um, and I think on the perimeter, it is a concern. Now, Donovan coming off the ankle injury, so I give him a little bit of a pass in terms of, you know, he's trying to find his way. But, you know, with Mike Conley and Royce O'Neal and those guys, like pretty strong perimeter defenders. And so on paper, Josh should not be able to get into the paint whenever he wants. But the guy, you talk about change of direction, change of speed. You know, he just has a knack for, for kind of, you know, to getting through the, the Tetris uh, of defenders, if, if that makes any sense. 
So it's a concern. He's not going to drop 47 every night, I don't think. But, you know, he's obviously been productive, and, and Dylan has too. So it, it does seem somewhat real. So, Sam, confession time. I uh, And you may know this, actually, but uh, I've been in the, the Clippers camp for quite some time. The, the Clippers, they'll eventually pull it together camp for a long, long time. <laughs> and they now trail the, the Mavericks losing two games at home. And I, I look and feel really dumb. So where did I go wrong? What did I miss about this team? <laughs> Seriously, I can't believe it. 0-2 to the Mavericks. And, and hey, the, Ma- the Mavericks are good and Luka's amazing. But, I mean, it just feels like they constantly fall short. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you. I, I, I overlooked the Mavs. Um, you know, Porzingis hasn't been as good as he was previously, and I thought that was going to matter more. Um, you know, Luka has been playing at a really high level for a long time, but you felt like, like, wait a minute, isn't that exactly why they went out and got Kawhi Leonard and Paul George? Like, if you can't shut down one high-level elite, you know, perimeter scorer, then, you know, what's the point of getting two guys who, well, I must say were, because right now they're not living up to their reputation, two guys who were known as, you know, top five perimeter defenders in the NBA, um, you know, a former defensive player of the year, so I don't know what to make of it. It's a little talk about John Morant and his dominance and, you know, kind of overcoming a jazz perimeter defense that has a great reputation. Luke is doing the same thing. He's crafty. Um, you know, he's finding his teammates, you know, the game one, he didn't even score all that much in that final stretch, but the threat of what Luca brings opened everything up for everybody else. So he's been incredible. And, uh, I'm, you know, if they end up finishing this job, and I'm going to actually try to write a column on this tonight, you know, it runs the risk of, of kind of blowing this Clippers thing up. And I, you know, I don't think Kawhi Leonard's going to leave in free agency, but still, like, Steve Ballmer's head's going to explode if this thing happens because I do not anticipate, you know, he did not think he was going to be out in the first round. Circling back on sort of the whole idea of the Clippers trying to. <laughs> arrange this matchup, uh, there, there's some real irony here, huh, Sam? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, that's, that's there's something about their demeanor and their talking points that honestly kind of drive me nuts and drive a lot of people nuts. You know, it's like constantly saying that you're not concerned, constantly acting like, and, and this will sound petty because maybe I'm making it, a little bit too much about me and my outlet, but you know, last year we took a lot of flack myself and the Clippers beat writer wrote a story highlighting the chemistry issues the Clippers had, you know, and they just, they acted like we got it all wrong, like nothing to see here. And and everything we wrote about bared out, you know what I mean? And there's just a weird vibe. And I think honestly has a lot to do with the fact that Kawhi is a tremendous player, but I, I don't think we've seen, you know, any great leadership out of him. His personality is just different, and he's not, you know, you see the older LeBron James has gotten, you know, the other night he's gassing up Contavious Caldwell Pope in a key moment. He's in his ear. He's learned how to pick guys up. He's learned how to connect with other people. Um, The Clippers' experience continues to feel fairly transactional, if that makes sense. Like, you, we have the talent, and the talent should win the championship, and then uh, you know, yet again, at least so far, they're kind of left sitting here going, well, what's missing? Why isn't this working? So I'm curious, Sam, to your take on 
on Chris Paul and kind of the repeating history of his injuries in the playoffs, is he the world's most unlucky player? Or is there a study to be done here on why load management is a thing and that maybe he has, you know, burnout or whatever uh, way you want to describe it going into all these playoff series? But it's it's seemingly the last, you know, four or five times, uh, if I remember correctly, four out of the last five years that he's been injured in the playoffs. Um, I think right now I would probably not agree with you there, Jake, as far as right now. I mean, I think in the past, perhaps, um, but this thing the other night seemed to me like a fluke injury and something where, you know, somebody pulls on your shoulder. Uh, I don't know how much wear and tear is coming into play there. And and as you guys know, because he's talked about a lot, you know, Chris has changed his routine in the kind of way that I think had him ready to roll. And now he was healthy in the first round last year, and he played at a high level against Houston when they lost in seven games. So, you know, he was effective and got the job done there, and and they almost shocked the world and, and beat his old team. But, yeah, this one is, is just super unfortunate because, you know, it's it's whatever the opposite of poetic justice is, like you're playing your good friend LeBron James in the first round, and it's been a very long time. You guys have probably heard this story about how the first time LeBron was in the NBA Finals, Chris Paul sat courtside while he was playing for New Orleans and w- watched the game and then later went on to say, like, like I love my friend, but, like, I don't, I don't want to watch the Finals from sideline anymore. I want to be in them. And all these years later, he's still trying to get to that stage, and he hasn't been able to. So for him to then be in a playoff series against LeBron for the first time in his career – you know, the, the story, if it went the other way, would be incredible. What if he beat LeBron and then went on to get to the finals? Well, now all of a sudden it, it looks like it's just more of the same, that an injury is going to end up, you know, nipping him in the bud and they're going to get bounced and, and it's going to be, you know, more for a guy who's already had one of the toughest playoff resumes in the history of the game. Sam, thus far, have you had any revelatory moments when you're watching what's going on and you're thinking, hmm, I – that that stands out to me. Anything? From any of the series, Gordon? Yeah. Um, I mean, the first one, I guess, that comes to mind, it's one of the more boring series so far, but like Philly and Washington, I guess I'll, here, I'll, I'll put it this way. The top of the East is, I think, is super interesting because Brooklyn's having their way with Boston. Uh, and I think the general question of, like, who's the favorite in the East, I think it's kind of cool that we don't really know at all right now. Like Milwaukee, it, it's funny. Everybody's acting like, oh, man, this Miami series, is, there's, you know, it's nothing like last year, and they're just breezing through them. And I get it. They they destroyed them in game two. But they barely made it out of game one. So I don't even know what to think of Milwaukee yet. Like, I'm impressed by the 2 nothing lead, but let's not pretend that it was two blowouts. You know, it was a win by the seat of your pants game one and then destruction in game two. But, you know, Milwaukee's looking good. Philly is doing, you know, taking care of business with the Wizards, and their defense is something that I think is going to hold up throughout the course of the playoffs. You know, to see a guy like Bradley Beal play pretty well and then have to fight through Ben Simmons and have to fight through Matisse Steibel, you know, and have to fight through guys like that, Tobias Harris even in stints, uh, you know, their defense looks to me like something that, who knows, could take them to the final. So that Milwaukee uh, Brooklyn, Philly 
trio, uh, I think is really strong at the top of the East. Sam, as always, thank you very much for jumping on with us. We appreciate it. You got it, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Sam. Sam Amick of The Athletic, and make sure you check out uh, his piece with uh, Tony Jones. He did a great inside look at uh, the Donovan Mitchell situation. That's up at theathletic.com. Yeah, yeah, all good. Any takeaway there? Do you think think Sam thinks the Jazz are going to roll forth now? Oh, I don't know if I got the impression. Roll forth is is pretty strong, but. You think that's what's going to happen, right? I do. I don't know if they rattle off three in a row. But, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, you know, two of those would be in Memphis. That's that's probably a pretty tall order. But, yeah, I, I certainly expect them to move forward. I thought it was interesting what Quinn said last night after the game, that his team is is reconnected, you know, having Donovan back. And that bodes well. So Because they've been a team that has, even though they have stars on, on the team, it, it's a team that needs to be connected yeah. in order to be what it's shown that it can be. So I talked to, to somebody yesterday or somebody today, actually, who's, who's around the locker room. And uh, they, they told me about the kind of the vibe in game one, as opposed to game two, just the way the guys interacting uh, stark difference, hmm. stark difference between game one and game two. And maybe it was, you know, the letdown of Donovan not playing in game one, you know, I, I don't know. And game two, maybe Donovan being back or or the, the refocus, I don't know. But this person who was close to it told me the vibe was distinctly different, which I can I can buy for sure. Well, you definitely would be more confident, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. We'll have more Big Show coming up straight ahead, 97.5 and 1280 The Zone.